So we're, we're in Ecclesiastes here, chapter 2 is our reading today, thanks to Noah. Uh, and this everything in, in Scripture informs our understanding of God. Now, sometimes we inherit a mental image of God. It, it could involve a hell sender who must torture unfortunate sinners with eternal conscious torments to demonstrate his glory. I don't quite get that. Or it could be like a smiley face emoji deity who is a milk toast nice. Uh, hopefully we make adjustments as we go along. Uh, we recalibrate our understanding of God as we accumulate experience. Uh, we sort through many images or pictures or our own projections of God. Um, I always heard that God was all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise, all-merciful, all-just. Uh, these are like abstractions that never really moved me that much. He sounded like uh, a, uh, someone you put together in a philosophy class. Um, we also have the Jewish genius of depicting God as a character in stories of many different kinds, like Genesis 2, where God kneels down on the ground to form a human out of the soil, then breathes into them the first mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, not resuscitation. Um, we have the stories of Jesus called parables, where God is depicted often in kind of quirky ways, uh, like as a daft woman who loses a coin at night and keeps her neighbors awake, searching high and low for it, and insists on having a party early in the morning. Uh, so religious or faith traditions provide us with the raw material to shape our understanding of God. And just as we don't usually make up our own languages, that would be a lot of work, and we're not J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and it wouldn't help us talk to anyone but ourselves. We, we do our quest for God anchored normally to a tradition. When I was 19 and needing a missing piece in my life, I find myself drawn to the Jesus of the Gospels. I knew even at that tender age that I only had one lifetime, probably, and there was no way I was going to be married and a parent, which I was at the time, graduate college, get a full-time job, and explore even, say, three major religious traditions enough to figure out which of those three was, like, the best. So I had been a teenage atheist, but I was feeling myself wooed by God through this Jesus connection. So I took a deep breath and I went with it. Um, despite stepping on a few rusty nails lying around in my tradition, uh, it's where I found my way. Doesn't mean I don't learn helpful things from other religious traditions. I'm on my third year of Headspace, a Buddhist mindfulness meditation app. Oh, praise, interfaith me. But when I first came to my Jesus version of faith, I had been reading some of the post-war existentialist writings like this one. I was, I was reading the existentialist writings uh, when I was like 19 years old, I was a nerd even then. And uh, one book I loved was Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It sounds kind of heady, but Frankl survived the Nazi uh, death camps. And this book sold 12 million copies. And it's, it's short and it's full of stories, actually. He says, uh, Frankl does, that we choose to find meaning in the face of our suffering and the search for meaning is more powerful than the search for pleasure. 
he was a, a psychiatrist. So existentialism came out of the period when Western culture was in a state of deep disillusionment. So the 20th century was supposed to be the century of steady, inevitable progress, but it got waylaid fast by World War I, and then the Great Depression, and World War II, the Holocaust, the atom bomb, environmental disaster, and then the growing awareness by some white Americans how our American Revolution was conducted by slaveholders and was followed by the cultural and actual genocide of the people who first inhabited this land. So these are sins we all still haven't reckoned with. So here I was, a new dad, thinking these thoughts, eligible to be drafted into the army during Vietnam, uh, wondering what life was about. So I could be excused for turning to God. 2020 reminds me so much of 1971, except for the global pandemic part. So my first dip into what we called the Old Testament um, after an aborted attempt to read Genesis was the book of Ecclesiastes. So why Ecclesiastes? Why did I read Ecclesiastes first in the Old Testament? Because I liked Turn, 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 Covered by the Birds in 1965. If you remember that song, it's probably going to become an earworm for a while <laughs> while I'm talking. Uh, so I didn't grow up with Bible stories. So, you know, it's funny talking to a, a computer screen and laughing at your own jokes and not hearing any, anyone else laughing. I hope I don't go into a fit of laughter for the absurdity of it. But um, I didn't grow up with Bible stories. Um, so reading the other parts of the Old Testament made me feel stupid at first. And you do not want to feel stupid when you're 19. You don't yet realize what delights begin with feeling stupid. So I read Ecclesiastes because I knew I knew this song in my head. And I knew that was part of Ecclesiastes. Turn, turn, turn to every season. Emily read it last week. So we know the author of this book goes by the pen name Kohelet. Just uh, we see that in the Hebrew, it's not in the English translation so much. It's a koi pen name because it is a woman's name. And the author adopts the voice of a king in Jerusalem who is very much like Solomon, who is known for three things, building the first temple, asking God uh, for and receiving wisdom when he could have asked for anything and got it. He asked for wisdom and received it. And he was known for having many wives and concubines. No one thinks the writer of Ecclesiastes actually was Solomon. The ancient conventions of authorship were much different than modern conventions of authorship. So sometimes the named author of a book of scripture is accurate by modern standards, like i.e. was the person in actual history, but often not. Like Paul's writings, for example, are divided into the undisputed letters. That's the ones we know were written by the Apostle Paul. And then the disputed letters, which are the ones that were probably written by later followers of Paul's teaching who wrote them under his name. You can kind of tell the difference in these two groups of letters ascribed to Paul. No one got arrested for plagiarism. This was the convention of the time to ascribe certain writings to other figures. So if I were still in an evangelical church, I'd have to say, everybody calm down or please come back. I'm not done yet. Um, so now with that meandering introduction, let us read today's portion that Noah introduced us to. 
Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I'm reading a little bit more of it than, than Noah's uh, portion today. The writer, Koalet, imagining themselves as this king, much like Solomon, writing in that voice. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. This is like a wealthy guy who has slave labor doing these things and takes credit for doing it himself. It's like, oh my God. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I made male and female slaves, bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh, and many co concubines were almost done. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found treasure in all my toil, and this was re my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So three preliminary remarks before the surprising thing about Colette's vision of God that I wanna focus on. First preliminary thing, this is part of the Hebrew Bible called the writings or wisdom literature. And wisdom in the Hebrew Bible is a divine attribute personified as a woman. And a woman who dances with God and with humans. Um, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was actually in wide use, uh, including by Jews of the period, called this lady Sophia. You may have heard that, the divine feminine Sophia. Two, preliminary remark. This may be part of the reason for the author of Ecclesiastes, Koi pen name being Kohelet, a woman's name. So Ecclesiastes is a work of divine feminine wisdom, you could say. And then three, before we get all high and mighty about the writer's words about, about owning slaves, let's remember the writer is Kohelet, writing as though they were Solomon, even though Solomon is long dead. And it's fine for us to condemn Solomon or anyone slaveholding. Um, while we're at it, though, we should feel some distress for enjoying sh uh, cheap stuff from Amazon made by people working in conditions we wouldn't want to work in. And in the fact that essential workers during the pandemic include many not even making a living wage. So let's not project our collective guilty conscience on a literary figure so we can ignore these things. Let's do our work and change these bad realities that some of us benefit from. So preliminaries over. What surprising thing does this portion reveal about God or about the nature of divine wisdom? 
I think it's this. God is at ease with humans who feel a need to find out for themselves what is meaningful or wise or leads to happiness by performing some failed experiments. And this perspective is a corrective for the fear of making mistakes that often passes as wisdom, but isn't true wisdom. So let's read couple portions again, noting where wisdom is to be found in it, because this is the key to the surprising, surprising perspective of wisdom. I said to myself, come now, I'll make a test of pleasure. But again, this was also Vanny. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What is, what is it? What use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good, etc. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desires, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, blah, blah, blah. Some of the things the writer has the Solomon-like king experiment with were things we would say were good, like enjoying simple pleasures in life, laughter. Like you tried that, it didn't work. I'm like, well, it actually works better than, than you think. Um, so, some were dodgy or downright bad ideas. Some were, um, well, not bad in moderation, but I'm not sure you're focused on moderation right now. Like when it says, I searched how to cheer my body with wine. If your 21-year-old says, hey, mom, I'm going out now to search how to cheer my body with wine, you're like, oh, be careful, uh, take an Uber, uh, better yet, stay home. Uh, but it's at this point we have this counterintuitive insertion where the, the author is saying his version of, hey, mom, I'm going out to search how to cheer my body with wine. Don't worry, my mind's still guiding me with wisdom. Like wisdom still with me. To which mom says, uh, well, who is this wisdom? Can she text me while you're out? Um, and then follows other experiments, the building projects, the botanical gardens, the waterworks, buying slaves, accumulating great wealth, forming a choir, indulging the delights of the flesh, including what was available to all kings of this era, uh, including the kings of, in Israel, which were concubines. So you notice the author of Ecclesiastes never has the king say, then I came to my senses and repented of all the bad things I did. Instead, we are assured that wisdom was with this experimenter in his quest to see for himself what leads to happiness and meaning all along the way. So, Poelet's vision of God includes a divine presence at ease with the fact that sometimes we humans have to learn for ourselves through a process of experimentation. And that what we might call failed experience, experiments in happiness are part of learning what true happiness entails. I think this perspective is especially helpful for those of us who are afraid of making mistakes with God or afraid of 
making mistakes in life. The fear of making mistakes is really not part of the glorious liberty of the children of God that uh, the New Testament speaks of. Children, by virtue of being children, do make mistakes, but they have someone to help them when they do. Children don't learn by fearing mistakes. They learn by understanding that mistakes happen and are not disasters, but part of the learning process. Children learn by playing mostly, and playing is a form of learning in, in which mistakes are more or less irrelevant. It's just hard to make a mistake while you're playing, unless someone gets hurt or you draw blood. Wisdom is depicted in Proverbs as a playful divine being. Uh, did you learn to ride a two-wheeler when you were focused on your fear of falling? Or when you said, oh, what the heck, if I fall, I fall. I'm only three feet tall anyway, it won't hurt that much. Did you ever fall in love while focused on your fear of what might happen if the person you love disappoints you, or for that matter, dies, which they will? Those of you who are gay and were raised in a homophobic church, I, I learned so much from you in hearing your stories. Um, you, you may have faced this same thing. You finally met someone who was a suitable match for you, even though the people around you were freaked out. And perhaps you had internalized their fear as a natural, as a, it's a natural thing to do. We're social creatures. You were paralyzed for so long as you were afraid of making a mistake. And the people around you mistook that fear for wisdom, but it wasn't wisdom. But somewhere in your heart, you knew otherwise. And so you put the mute button on that voice in your head that warned you that you were making a mistake and you let yourself be the person you are. And in so doing, you stepped into reality where God also resides. And you stepped into the glorious liberty of the children of God, even if it felt a little scary at the time. So one of the tenets of existentialism is that we are never more human than when we are choosing. That there is something sacred, there's something holy about choosing. That God is in our choosing even when we make what could be regarded as the wrong choice. God chooses and we choose being in God's image and likeness. I've told this story before, but I think it applies here, and I only have so many stories. My departed wife, Nancy, was stressing over one of her kids making choices she was nervous about. So Nancy took a nap in a funk one Sunday afternoon. And during the nap, my mother, who had died too young some years earlier, but was probably a more nurturing mother figure to Nancy than her own mother was, came to Nancy in a dream and said, tell Maya she has a choice. Now, um, my mother was culturally British. Her mother came from England. Um, she didn't give my mother, uh, didn't give unsolicited advice. And if she did, so she would do it always indirectly. So Nancy understood this was Blanche's indirect way of saying to her, Maya is exercising her choice and that is her sacred prerogative. Give her the room she needs. So Nancy woke up refreshed, having been led by her dream into the glorious liberty 
of the children of God. I, I remember it visit vividly. I saw her after the nap, and I was like, what? Wow, that was a good nap. One last thing. I think Jesus would have known this text um, and liked it. Uh, we do know Jesus had a special identification with the divine feminine aspect of God. The evidence that he was informed by this text, I think, is in the fact that um, the people who were regarded as sinners in Israel, and this was more like a religious outcast category than a sin category, these people regarded Jesus as their friend. If I hear one more non-affirming pastor say, I love gay people, I think I might scream. Uh, gay people know that when a pastor says, I love gay people, it's time to head for the exits. Um, it's like the white pastor who says, I'm not a racist. What that means, the translation of that is, I'm denying my unconscious bias, which means I'm not even trying to overcome it. But, but Jesus was known as a friend of sinners by the people who were classified as sinners by the gatekeepers of their day. And when the gatekeeper said of Jesus, and this is in the Gospels, it's in the um, Gospel of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, I think. When people said of him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners, that was shorthand for he enjoyed a good party. And the people who don't invite us to their party parties invite him, and we kind of resent him for it. So I think Jesus, informed by Ecclesiastes, knows that God is way more at ease with ordinary people than we give God credit for. I think Jesus, informed by Ecclesiastes, knew God was at ease with people who need to kick the tires to see for themselves what is wisdom and what is folly and what leads to true happiness by a kind of trial and error process. I think Jesus saw in such people, maybe even in us, Agents exercising their sacred prerogative of choosing, pursuing life, not avoiding mistakes. I think these were the people Jesus felt were good soil for his teaching. Maybe this is part of why Jesus said more than anything else, do not be afraid. So this understanding is like a surprise gift from Colette that I would like to absorb into my understanding of God who is full of surprises. And now uh, Kathy will lead us in a meditation. Thanks, Ken. So I'm going to lead us in a time of meditation. This is for anyone who wants to join in. Everything we do here collectively is always optional. But for those of you who would like to participate, let's get comfortable wherever we are. You can close your eyes and just rest your hand on your heart. Take a few deep, slow breaths in and out. Now keeping your hand on your heart, imagine the nurturing presence of Sophia, the divine feminine, enveloping you in a warm blanket. 
She gently drapes it over your shoulders and tucks it around you, fully enclosing your body in its warmth. As she does that, you feel the warmth on your skin. And then you feel your heart underneath your hand start to warm. Begin to feel that warmth spread through your body slowly, reaching your abdomen, your arms, your legs, your head, your fingers and toes. Notice that you feel the warmth now from outside of yourself and also from the inside, from without and from within. Allow any tension that you feel in your body to release as you rest now in the warm presence of divine wisdom. Allow yourself to simply exist here. your thoughts begin to race, notice them and come back to feeling warm. Feel the warmth in your body from within and from without. Keep breathing and I'm going to read a passage from Proverbs 3. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, God laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, she set the heavens in place. By her knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. Do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Go ahead and take a couple more deep breaths. When you're ready, you can open your eyes.